Well, open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. As you're turning to James, James is such a rich and dense and wonderful book. If for no other reason, James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Tradition tells us that James likely became a Christian after the resurrection. We see him ministering in the book of Acts. So there's no indication that he was uh, uh, somehow warmed to the gospel during Jesus' life. But afterwards, he did come to faith in Christ. And he wrote this book, which was the first book written of the New Testament. What I find very interesting is as James begins this epistle, he says nothing of his relationship to Jesus. Can you imagine being the half-brother of Jesus Christ, the one who had done all the miracles, done all the teaching, had all the authority, died on the cross for the sins of those who have believed, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. You grew up with him and you found no reason to brag about that. What an amazing gift. In fact, he just says, James, a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. This week and next week, I want us to isolate our attention more like a Bible study, just a kind of a pastoral chat, if, if, uh, if I can, about trials. If you know much about the Bible, your heart has no doubt drawn itself back to this passage over and over as you've experienced difficulties. Let me read verses 2 through 12, and then we're only going to do with the first three verses of this section tonight. We'll finish that rest of the verses next week. James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. And so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuit will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved... He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It is no secret that we are all in a trial. In fact, it's fair to say this is the most wide-ranging, all-encompassing trial in our lifetime. We have been um, lamed in so many of our life's pursuits during this trial. And it's caused all of us to ask some serious and some hard questions. If you were to take a, a, a dictionary and look up the word crucible in the dictionary, it would say a, a vessel made of refractory substance, a refractory substance such as graphite or porcelain, used for melting 
and uh, calcifying materials at high temperatures. In other words, it's one of those little dishes that you used in chemistry class that you could put a Bunsen burner underneath and, and heat up substances. It's a chemistry tool. But there's a secondary definition that is also in the dictionary. Sometimes I like to open a dictionary and see the, the multifaceted different ways that a, a word can be translated. The second translation, second rather definition underneath crucible is this. A severe test as of patience or belief, a trial. Another dictionary reads, a test of the most decisive kind, a severe trial as the crucible of affliction. The trauma that occurs in a porcelain dish when it's heated up to a high temperature, extreme heat, is a linguistic picture for trials and traumas that come into our existence. The audience to whom James was writing was in need of counsel about trials. They were on the run for their lives. They were a part of the diaspora. They had been been spread abroad. He, He mentions that in the first verse. They were literally without home and without jobs and roaming around because of the persecution that had become them as Christians. They were in desperate need of counsel and instruction and insight. That could be you today. You have things in your life that have caused you questions, things in your life that are undesired, things in your life that are unpleasant, things in your life that are unsure. I want to give you some encouragement tonight. That God knows, Jesus knows, and Jesus' half-brother James actually gives us instruction on how to handle such a situation. Again, for the first time in our lifetimes, the entire world is facing a common trial. The same trial at the same time. Other generations have done this, just not ours. For example, other generations have have encountered war and plague, and that's encompassed the whole world. But this is the first time that the whole world has come almost to a standstill over a common theme, a common problem. We're beginning our second month, about to start our second month of dealing with the coronavirus, COVID-19, and it is a very good time for us to stop and pause and ask some questions. We need to be realistic and realize that this is not a trial that's going to end soon. It's going to be a trial that slowly dissipates over time. It's not a light switch we turn off and it's all over. When does crisis begin? And the answer is when we're born, we're born into a life of trouble. But when crises do come in, a, in a, an understanding way that this is unpleasant, undesired, I, It's important that we need to look to God's character, look to God's sovereignty, believe that He is for us and not against us as believers. And we have perspective, the power of perspective that an unbeliever just simply doesn't have. This is going to be a a trial that doesn't leave soon, as I said. I've spoken to plenty of you. In fact, the last two months, I, I... I think I've probably spoken to more people in our church than I have in any other two-month period since I've been the pastor here at Mission Road. And I think it's fair to say that all of us have had good moments and bad moments, good days and bad days. Let's just say good weeks and better weeks. I know that some people are dealing with fear, frustration, impatience, governmental distrust, boredom, and even laziness. 
We all have responded to this crisis in different ways, even at different times and maybe even in different parts of the day. But for a believer in Jesus Christ, one who has given their life to him under his mastery, under his lordship, there's good news tonight. And I want us to dig as deep as time will permit into the opening section of this book of James. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 12 is like water for someone who is thirsty in the middle of a desert. It is quenching to our souls to understand how to understand that which we don't understand. James chapter 1 is unparalleled in its wisdom to handle trials and insight for understanding trials and an instruction for triumphing through trials. And if you've been a Christian for very long, I'm sure you found this section of Scripture as an oasis of divine perspective in a desert of difficult times. The book of James is, itself finds uh, its way to the top of almost everyone's list as one of their favorite books. It's so practical. It's so down-to-earth. It's so simple. A little background for understanding the epistle of James. The recipients, as I said, were, were Jewish Christians who were scattered here and there outside Jerusalem. They had, were called the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad in uh, verse 1. They could have been Jews who were scattered as a result of the, the faith they had given to Christ. They could have been Jews who were scattered because of the increasing uh, persecution that the Romans were, were placing on the Jews. But as you read through the book, you realize these are people who knew the gospel and claimed the gospel, although some had a, a faith that didn't work and it was a false conversion. They may have been running for their lives. Think about it like Stephen, who was killed for his faith in the early years of Christianity. These were believers, likely, who were running for their lives. And as James will tell them in chapter 2, some of you think you're saved and you're really not because your faith that you believe, you have good doctrine about Christ, doesn't evidence itself in works. There's no obedience to Christ. There was a real threat of political persecution, religious persecution, social persecution, even physical persecution for these, these people running in what we call the diaspora. And James's audience were were scared. They, they were confused. They were much like so many of us now, not knowing what tomorrow holds, paralyzed by the thought of absolute loyalty to Christ and whether or not they might miss out on something if they sold out to the Lord. To these believers, James writes, the most exhortative book in the New Testament. And the reason is... They needed to be instructed on how to live Christian lives, not just how to endure suffering and trials. Letter letter concentrates on two overarching themes, Christian ethics and Christian wisdom. James is interested in them being holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly devoted to Christ, or wholly holy. Faith works. It's practical. It has impact on your life if you've followed the Lord Jesus in, in faith. James begins in a very interesting place. He acknowledges that they're in a difficult place. 
And what he tells them about it is a little bit surprising. It's, it's edgy. It's unexpected. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. One translation says it like this. Count yourselves supremely happy when hard times come. In other words, be happy that you're in and while you're in the crucible of difficulty. I like what Kent Hughes says. He comments that after reading this greeting, the readers should have said something like this. How nice. A letter of encouragement from Pastor Wacko. Who starts by saying, have joy in your difficulty? Well, James did, and he did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not just a simple, don't worry, be happy song. It is a rational understanding of what is going on in our world and in our lives so that we can respond appropriately. If you have to hang on with the Apostle James, you are hanging on with someone who has done it and been there and done that and come through with flying colors himself. Verses 2 to 12, he's going to provide counsel that we all need for the crucibles we are facing or that we are going to face. And tonight and next week, I'm going to break this passage down into two sections. The first we're going to deal with tonight is our approach, excuse me, our attitude to trials. How should we think about trials theologically? But next week is what do we do in a trial? What is our approach to a trial? So tonight is is theological, it's mental, it's balancing your perspective on the authority of Scripture. But next week is what do you do when you find yourself in a trial? And I have every confidence that next week we will still be dealing with this pandemic. So the first thing James does in counseling his friends is to tell us to adjust our attitude toward trials. Adjust our attitude toward trials. Now there are two concepts you need to recall when you're adjusting your attitude toward trials. How can you adjust your attitude? Well, our outline tonight will be simply this. Remember the reason for trials and embrace the outcome of trials. Remember the reason for trials and embrace the outcome of trials. That's how you adjust your attitude in difficulty. Let's look at the first. Remember the reason for trials. Now, before we jump into verse 2, let me just tell you that These are going to be themes that you'll hear me talk about tonight and next week that we have talked about many times at Mission Road Bible Church. Some of you will say, I I wrote part of that in my Bible. You've said that before and you're right. But let me tell you, my own heart needs to be refreshed in so many of these foundational truths for understanding how do we find the bedrock foundation for our faith. So number one, remember the reason for trials. Verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, before we talk about what James means by this, can I suggest what he doesn't mean? James does not mean that we should have an all-unquestioning, all-encompassing emotional elation during severe trials. You're given a bad physical diagnosis. Elation doesn't come for that. Your child gets sick. That doesn't generate elation. He's not talking about that roller coaster feeling where you get off and you say, I want to do that again. He knew exactly what the writer to the Hebrews said, who uses 
actually trial and affliction as an illustration of how God shepherds and hones in our own hearts. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, the writer says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. He's honest. What God is doing to discipline us, what God is doing to shape us, what God does to mold us into his character, rarely feels pleasant at that time. James is also not saying that we should get excited when we stump our toe in the middle of the night. What a joy. Or finding out that we owe a significant figure to the IRS. What another joy that is. Or hearing that a spouse is in an adulterous relationship. There's no joy from that. There's no joy when you hear of a friend who's had a miscarriage. Or learning that you might measure the rest of your life in days or weeks or months rather than years or decades. He's not talking about being happy over things that grieve even the heart of God. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. Rather, James is saying that there is a Christian perspective, a Christian understanding about life and all that life brings us that gives us perspective and joy because of our Christian faith. Not because of the bad problems, but because of our faith and its sustaining presence with us during those trials. Every word in this first sentence is just pregnant with meaning. Look at it with me. Consider, literally think of, reckon, deem it, weigh it out. Consider. In other words, James starts by saying, stop and think about your trials. This is not something to just endure without any contemplation. Think about it. Roll it over in your mind. Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? Why am I experiencing the things that I'm experiencing? As Hebrews 12 says, am I actually experiencing a trial because of the consequences of sin? And God's disciplining me. Consider, think about it. So often we just respond with our feelings. We don't stop to meditate and think about what what is going on here in my life, in my home, in my world, in God's world. Consider. Be deliberate. Consider it all joy, literally pure joy. This is the same word as a Greek word that we use for greetings. Karain. It means consider it welcome. Don't look at trials as an unwelcome part of God's dealing with us. That's the word for joy. Consider it welcome. You're greeting it. You go toward it, not against it. And then that next word, when, I've told you this many times before, uh, and I don't mean this irreverently, but I've often thought if I could change one word in the Bible, it would be this word, the word when. I wish it said, consider it all joy if, if you encounter various trials. But he says when, they are certain, they are coming. There is no avoiding trials as a Christian. Don Carson says, all you have to do is live long enough as a Christian and you will suffer and experience severe trials. Troubles and difficulties are a part of our lives, everyone's life. No one is immune. No matter how hard we try to make our lives free from trouble, trouble seems to find us. 
It's kind of like trying to childproof a home. When our boys were young, we, we tried so hard to childproof our house. And by childproof, I mean take everything higher than they could get to or, or lock things up. No matter how hard we tried to childproof our house, our boys unchildproofed our house. Trials are like that. Can't avoid them. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter, encounter, literally to fall into something so as to be surrounded. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you are surrounded, you're swallowed up by life's difficulties. He even gives us another description of various trials, literally multicolored, variegated, different textured, all different kinds of trials. Various trials. What can a trial be? It can mean a difficulty, a disappointment, a frustration, a misunderstanding, an unfulfilled expectation, a great loss, loneliness, fear, criticism, persecution, conflict, sickness, pain, go on and on. Anything undesired and unpleasant becomes a trial in our lives. And James says, consider it welcome when you encounter all kinds of different trials. Welcome it. There's a joy to be found in it, not because of the trial, but because of the God who is with us in the trial. Now, take a step back. James is saying, in the middle of all this, welcome your trials and have joy. Why and how can we do that? Now, let's be theologically accurate here. James is not saying we should be joyful that there is a, a pandic, pandem, pandemic of, of coronavirus, of COVID-19, and more than 50,000 people have died in our country. We, we shouldn't be joyful about that happening. But we can be joyful that this world is not our home. This is not where we will spend the rest of eternity. And we can have perspective. Even if our trials don't subside, God always stays with us. Verse 3 is really the, the, the key to the passage. And we have talked about this uh, when we were in Romans chapter 5. We're going to parallel those passages when we were studying Romans 5, we came to this passage. And studying this passage, we need to go back to Romans chapter 5. Because of the word knowing, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, how and why do we do that? Knowing, knowing. We know something that unbelievers don't know when they encounter trials. I'm so drawn back to Abraham in Genesis 22. Abraham 20, uh, uh, Genesis 22, 1 says, Abraham was tested by God. God was testing Abraham. But Abraham did not know God was testing him when he said, go kill your son Isaac. Also think of Job in Job 1 and 2. Satan and God have a, a conversation in heaven. Satan requests to afflict Job and God says, have Adam, just don't kill him. And then Job's life literally falls apart. He loses everything he owns, 10 children. He loses his livestock, the potential for money. He loses his health. He loses the sweet encouragement of his wife. Job didn't know about that conversation. 
Here's the good news. You and I are not like Abraham and not like Job. We know. We endure difficult circumstances. We encounter various trials knowing. Knowing. This is the reason we are to remember. When we find this reason, we remember it. Encountering various trials really is the earthly facade for God testing our faith. You can think of it this way. (laughs) Your trial is the glove in which God's hand perfectly fits to fashion you and me into the likeness of His Son. We may not see the hand, but we do know the glove is filled with God's hand. A little theological footnote. At the heart of gaining proper perspective on a trial, in a trial, with a trial, is confidence and faith in the bedrock truth that God is sovereign. You must believe that God Almighty is in control of every detail and event in your universe or you will despair. You should despair if he's not in charge. He ordains all that happens to us, but he is not responsible for our sin. Yet he ordains everything we encounter. And James anticipates that some of his readers might think uh, uh, so that in the next section, he makes sure that they never think that God would tempt anyone to sin, but that's for, that's for next week. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and evil or ill go forth? And he's not talking about sin. He's just calamity, uh, viruses, sickness, the flu. God is still behind all that. Without a strong faith in a God who is sovereign, you will have no hope of ever having any understanding in your trials. They will be nothing more or less than cruel fate. And since fate has no personality, you can't get any help from fate during your trials. Now, very quickly, before we go past this word knowing, can you, can you flip back over to Romans chapter 5 for a moment? Romans chapter 5. We need to collate this passage with James chapter 1. In Romans 5, Paul talks about difficulty. But he talks about it in tandem with something else that's, that's quite surprising. Paul says um, in, um, well, let's just begin in verse 1 of chapter 5. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's the first four chapters of the book of Romans, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice or exult in the New American Standard in hope of the glory of God. So he says, we have joy, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's God coming with, to meet us, that's us going to meet God, that's the greatness of God, that's ultimately the hope of heaven. Not only do we have the joy in this, Paul says, we also rejoice or exult in our tribulations. Next word, knowing. In other words, Paul is reading from James's mail. He, James, would have been in circulation before Paul wrote the book of Romans. This is the same theology. You can have perspective in trials knowing something, knowing something. Paul says we know that um, 
Tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because of the love of God. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing something. What do we know from the hand of James, from the pen of James? We know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. In other words, the trial is a test for our faith. It's a testing that God brings. Dokemon, the Dokumenon, the, the word used here is only used twice in the New Testament here and in 1 Peter 1.6. In this you greatly rejoice, Peter says, even though for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. It's an interesting word. It was, it was used of an ancient goldsmith who had put his crude gold ore into a smelter, into a crucible, so that... It would be subjected, subjected to intense heat. It would liquefy. Then you would scrape off the impurities and the dross as they rise to the surface because gold is heavier. This was repeated multiple times over and over until the goldsmith could look down into the gold and see his reflection as in a mirror. Then he knew it was pure gold. I think that's a wonderful picture that this word paints for us. James is painting it for us. God puts us in the crucible of Christian suffering. And during the process, sin is gradually put out of our lives, rises to our understanding, rises to our noticing. We deal with it and we become more of a mirror in which God can look at us and see himself. We've talked about this idea of knowing that and how important that is over and over by simply asking three questions. When you encounter a various trial, when you have a difficult circumstance, when you have an unpleasant experience, ask yourself three questions. What do I feel? What do I think? And what do I know? James and Paul say that perspective in trials comes from knowing, but most of us respond in perspective to our trials by what we feel. We respond in feeling, we have to get to what we know, but where we really live is how we think. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Either what you know will dictate how you think or what you feel will dictate how you think. We have to make a choice. And both James and Paul say we have to get to the point of knowing, knowing what God is doing, knowing that God is doing, knowing that God is, is still there. God is looking for the leaks in our souls so that we can see them and with Him address them. And He uses difficult circumstances and trials to show them to us. I, I told you we would be saying some things we've said before. An illustration that comes back to me over and over is there was a friend of mine when I was younger who worked at a tire shop. We're going to go do something, so I went to meet him at his, where he worked before we uh, took off to go do something. I don't even remember what it was. And he said, I just have to fix this one tire that was left. And what he had was a big metal basin full of water. It was probably three feet deep. And he would take the tire and he would float it on this basin. 
Then he had a press that was had a two-by-four on, and he would pull the press down. It would push the tire underwater, and then he had a crank, and a big, blunt piece of metal would then pour in the, uh, uh, he would crank it, and it would press into the tire, and the tire would begin to be concave, and then he stopped. And he saw the leak where the air was being pushed out of the tire. I just have thought about that over the years. That's so much, I think, what God is doing to us and for us and with us in a trial. He is putting us in a position because of pressure that's being applied to us to be able to see and address things that are unlike Christ that we can repent of and deal with. And listen, it is a test. It's a testing of our faith. And we all know if we don't pass the test the first time, we have a faithful tutor, a faithful teacher who will then bring the test back again. James is talking about a conscious choice to see the possibility of triumph in the midst of trouble, to see the reality that pain might actually bring gain to see the resolution that doubt can, can bring when doubt is resolved in devotion, it becomes resolved. The conviction that Christ sees can bring a crown. This is not a foreign concept. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 7, 4. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Listen to Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Luke reports that the Sanhedrin called the apostles in, flogged them, they beat them, whipped them, and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They rejoiced because they understood something beyond their simple pain. Acts 16, 25, Luke says later that the, uh, after being beaten and flogged, Paul and Silas were in intense pain, laying in a prison. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them, ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus. They actually kept on doing the same thing. 1660 to 1672, John Bunyan, the English Baptist preacher and author of Pilgrim's Progress, if you want a good book to read while you're in lockdown, it's free for a PDF download. You can find it anywhere on the internet. Read Pilgrim's Progress. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel, John Bunyan was. At the time of his imprisonment, he could have been released if he had agreed not to preach again. He stayed faithful. He left a wife and four children outside those prison walls. His daughter Mary was blind and 10 years old when he was put in jail in 1660. He wrote this, The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my very bones not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I often brought to mind the many hardships and miseries, the many wants that my poor family was likely to meet because I was in prison, especially my poor blind child 
who lay nearer to my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I brought my blind one and what might go under, what might happen to her would break my heart into pieces. He stayed faithful. Only through this trial, though, did Bunyan gain perspective and maturity that has influenced so many of his writings. Listen to what happened in his heart. Later he said, I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now in prison. The scriptures that I saw nothing in before, uh, before making my way to this place now shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than he is now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. I have seen such things here that I am persuaded I will never see if I'm out of this prison and in the world again. Being very tender of me, God has permitted me not to be molested, but would with one scripture and another strengthen me against all. Insomuch as I've often said, were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble for greater comfort's sake, end quote. He understood that he saw things because of his trials, his difficulties, that he would have never seen in happy days. How can we find such strength in a trial? Well, there's a word that you need to notice before we leave this verse. It's the word endurance, hupomone, the ability to remain and live under. When God brings trials, the solution is not to get out of the trial. (laughs) The solution is to learn what God intends for our character and our Christ-likeness before we look for a way out. Trials bring spiritual toughness and maturity that only they can bring. We've said it many times before. I think so many times we spend so much time trying to get out of what God has willfully put us into for our good and for His glory. Remember the reason for trials. God's testing us and he's building our faith. It matters. And then secondly, it's the shorter of these two points. Embrace the outcome of trials. Embrace the outcome of trials. Understand where this goes. Let endurance have its perfect result, the endurance that the trial causes, that you may be, interesting words, perfect and complete, Lacking in nothing. Verses 2 and 3 reveal the reason for our trials and consequent rejoicing and happiness, contentment. But verse 4 shows us the end purpose. One of the peculiarities of James is a device he uses whereby he develops a thought. And as he does, he takes it to a specific thought or word uh, and, and it leads him on a chain of, of events. One thing is linked to another, what's link, is linked to another. The testing of our faith produces endurance. Let that endurance then have its perfect result. Endurance is a string that we're supposed to link to our maturity. The meaning of this word is a workhouse in the passage. It really means to remain under. Let remaining under trial have its perfect result that you will be trained by it the idea that we are to consider it joy 
during a trial because of the testing of our faith producing the ability to stay in the trial sounds unnatural. But the greater faithfulness you and I have, think about this, the greater faithfulness we have to Christ, we are inviting and soliciting trials, even persecution from our faithfulness. He says that you may be perfect and complete. These are words describing maturity. He doesn't mean perfect uh, in a moral sense. He means that you're, you're, you're matured, you're complete. That which is lacking in your faith is supplied by enduring through a trial. And again, if you don't see it the first time, God will, God will lovingly make sure that you stay there so that you will. One of my favorite passages in got to be careful because every preacher says that almost about every passage. But really, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible that has ministered to my soul, that has just been absolute um, balm to my heart, is in Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, passive, he's saying God afflicted him with trials, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Think about that. Before I was afflicted by trials, I was astray in sin. But now I keep your word. Learning from that trial moved me toward obedience to your word. You are good and do good, verse 68 says. Teach me your statutes. And then the psalmist says this. Are you ready? Can you say this? Listen to this. Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. We'll know that God is working his work in our hearts when our difficulties, our trials, our undesirable experiences actually move us closer to him, not further from him. They move us toward him in faith. They cure our doubts. So what is your default when your trials come? Not if, but when they come. Does it have its perfect result? Do you understand the outcome of your faith? Are you looking for it? Listen, during this pandemic trial, we should be looking for ways that God is specifically addressing issues in our lives and hearts so that we can be more like Jesus. He's doing that. The question is, are we recognizing it? He is faithfully doing that. Are we faithful to recognize it? It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. We're all afflicted at different levels and in different ways, some by loneliness, some by financial strains, some by laziness, some by loneliness. We have to remember that this is not, this is not a universal one-wrench-size-fits-all. God is specifically ordaining this trial for you and me individually so that it will bring out what He wants to see us how he wants to see us become like his son. He's testing our faith, what we believe and who we believe in. So as you interact with your care groups this week, as you interact with with your friends on Zoom, other believers, can I encourage you to use these three verses? 
as a discussion point to begin recognizing what is God doing in me? What is God doing to me? And then you'll start to understand what is God doing for me? That's the attitude that we need to have toward trials. They are benefits to us. And we do need to embrace them. I don't know what you're going through tonight, but God does. I don't know the extent of what you're going through, but God does. I don't understand the depth of, of your, your heartache, but God does. And he's new, he is actually involved in that struggle to make you more like his son. Pass the test of faith in him and watch what he does.